The other day, I sat down with Shane Monaghan, ex-professional rugby player, and I had so many questions for him that we ended up talking for almost two hours. I wanted to know everything about his career transition from professional rugby player to now being an entrepreneur. So many questions. And thankfully, he was really, really generous with his time. He answered all my questions, sometimes before I even got to them. I hope that you enjoy this first part of the interview. The second part will be released very soon. If you haven't already followed or subscribed to Your Big Career Move, then now is your chance because then you'll be the first to know about the next episode when it comes out. If you do enjoy this chat, then why not share it with somebody that you know would really enjoy it? Uh, Maybe somebody who's interested in rugby or you know is contemplating a career change of their own. I know that I love it when people share podcast episodes with me because there are so many podcasts out there. Sometimes it's hard to know what to listen to. Um, so if somebody shares something with me that they know I'll be interested in, then I'm really grateful because it saves me loads of time. And while you're here, if you're considering your own big career move and you've got a few doubts still in your mind, then I've prepared 10 questions just for you. You can find those on my website, which is yescareercoaching.com. And I'm sure these questions will help before you make your big career move. I hope that you enjoy my chat with Shane Monaghan. Thanks so much, Shane, for joining me today. It's a real pleasure to have you. We met quite a few years ago, and then we've both gone on and done things. And then um, and then your name popped up again. And I was like, this is a guy that I need to speak to because he's got such an awesome story. And I know it probably do all rugby, would all rugby fans know your name, Shane? I don't know. Not quite. No, no. Unfortunately, I didn't have um, a long enough career for a lot of people to know me. But saying that, you often come across like hardcore rugby fans and they know me and they know my stats. And, and it's it's quite nice when some. oh, yeah, I remember you. <laughs> I love it. They know your stats. That's very know, detailed. Yeah, some of them know stats and teams and, you know, being an Irish player in England as well. There's a lot more now, but in general, there's not a huge amount of Irish players playing in the Premiership or playing abroad at a high level. Big reason for that is like a lot of the times, if you want to play for Ireland, you have to play in Ireland. So right. a lot of top class players and just financial incentives from tax perspective and stuff like that as well. So when an Irish person does go abroad, in general, they'll keep an eye on them, you know, or the media will keep an eye and that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, no, it's great to to chat to you again. It's it's been a while. We were having a quick chat beforehand. We think it was around 2018 when we first met, and and here you are with your own podcast now, which is very exciting. Yeah. Your own evolution, which well, is awesome. I'll, I'll attribute the fact that I've created this podcast 100 to you, if you like, because well, I mean, I, I'm obviously saying that tongue in cheek, but I'm sure that the talk that I heard you make those years ago would have influenced me in some way we're all influenced by different things that are happening around us and it very possibly planted the seed for this so so thank you I mean I think you should just you're welcome anyway (laughs) (laughs) yeah so we've totally like my first question to my guests is always so what were you doing before your big career change and we've totally done the spoiler alert thing we've already mentioned rugby but do you mind just giving us a bit of background of your career before you made your big change? Yeah, of course. So I originally was a professional rugby player and it's hard to believe now that I hung up the boots in 2016, I believe, was it? 
I'm losing track now. It's that long ago. So I think it's uh, December 2015, I think it was. So, yeah, like I, I made a decision when I was 12 years of age that I wanted to be a professional rugby player and did everything within my power to do that. And often you hear that with people, a big issue they have when they're leaving school or even when they're adults and in college, they don't actually know what they want to do. So I was very lucky, I suppose, or privileged in a sense that I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And when you have that vision or focus, it makes those crossroads a lot easier mm. to decide what road to take. Mm-hmm. So everything um, was was focused on that. Um, funnily enough, though, it was one of those things I was never comfortable with the tagline, uh, oh, you're the rugby player. It was a strange thing. I never saw myself as just a rugby player. You know, it was something that I do that I love doing. But um, it, it kind of, even as a young person, was kind of something that kind of boxed me. And maybe it's because when I was growing up, I played lots of different sports as well. Even mm-hmm. though I wanted to be a professional rugby player, I played Gaelic football at a very, very high level in Ireland. I played soccer. I played golf. I had other interests. So maybe that was a good thing and and make you makes you a more re- well-rounded person as well because each one of those sports has a different philosophy and mindset and network and everything that goes with it um but it was something that I actually I I, I love to do and uh, molded me as a person who I am from a work rate you know ethics morals you name it without a doubt rugby is just one of the best sports in the world for that um and lends itself very well to what I do now as well in the entrepreneurship world. But um, well, yeah, we're, something... so, we're so digging into that later. Don't worry. I'm going to dissect yeah. that till the cows <laughs> come home. But I'm, I'm just curious. You said that you were good at all these sports. Why rugby? Um, why? I suppose when I was, I played a lot of sports, sports very early on. Rugby was one of the first ones I did when I was a kid because my dad, was captain of the local rugby team, had played in school, uh, was a big influence there. Like we're talking, he brought us on the rugby down to the club maybe five, six years of age, you know? So you're playing toddlers or on their sevens or whatever it was and you really enjoyed it. And then I branched out at about 10 or 11 to start playing football or soccer, you know? Um, and loved that, did very well there, was in a very successful team as well. And when you're at that pivotal age of, you know, 11, 12, 13, about to kind of begin puberty and go into a different side of your life and become a man. And the beginning of that, uh, I went back to rugby and really fell in love with it and discovered, geez, I'm really good at this. You know, I, I, I really enjoy it. I played out half at the time as well. And the other sports then I played Gaelic mainly was an amateur, is an amateur sport. So there's no route to make a career from that. And rugby was professional at the time, but still nowhere near the level it's at now. Like even at the time, Leinster, who were arguably the best team in the world, were getting beaten every week, you know? So (laughs) it shows how much Irish rugby has evolved since then, but it was something that I aspired to do. And uh, you're asked that question when it was a brilliant thing they did in my secondary school, St. Oliver's Community College. Um, they asked you the question every student that comes in they set up a video and they go what would you like to be when you grow up basically 
you know so it was one of those questions and, and I knew I I two pathways I, I always loved history military history and I had it in the back of my mind maybe to to join the army in Ireland as well but sport was my my first thing that I wanted to do so I said right I'm either going to join the cadets or become a professional rugby player and then they play that video for you then when you leave school five or six years later whatever it is so I had it there and as I said it was just that was in my head that's what I wanted to do and even with the others the, the great thing is those other sports complement the rugby definitely make you a better better all-round athlete um, but it was just I made a decision that's what I want to do and that was it and that's the kind of personality type I am when I decide I want to do something uh, rightly or wrongly uh, I'm quite stubborn in that regard uh, but I would think it has served me very well at the same time what were your parents thoughts on this you know because I think most parents when they hear their child say I'm going to be a professional football player rugby player whatever you know I think a lot of parents go oh well that's nice some parents obviously embrace it and do whatever it takes because there's a lot of ferrying around and all the kit and it's it's a big investment of time and money, isn't it? What was your 100%. parents' attitude? I, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my parents. I wouldn't have succeeded uh, as a professional athlete, as a rugby player, if it wasn't for my parents. Everything I do, essentially, their support is absolutely incredible. In regards to the rugby side of things, there was never, ever a question from them uh, of questioning it. Now that you asked the question, they never, ever doubted at all. It was only supporting you. And as you said, like all the different sports, we attended anything we ever wanted to do. They supported me and my siblings 100%, you know, and as you get older and you look back as you're a kid, you just take it for granted, you know, and you don't realize how lucky you are at the time. But, you know, driving all over the country for whether it's Gaelic or soccer or dropping us here, dropping us there. You know, if we needed football boots, we have football boots. Then when we started to climb the ranks and started to do well, going to all the games where they could to support, whether it was together or individually, which was massive. And again, it's that that support from your parents and, and making them proud as well. And an extended family as well. I was very lucky like that in terms of some of my um relations my grandparents are gone now god rest them but they were amazing growing up my uncle leo and the rugby side of things massive uh, influence and support from a rugby perspective he did very well in rugby himself at an underage level and he's still you know he's president of the local rugby club now going rfc so all those uh people your support network your family in particular are massive absolutely massive and as i said if it wasn't for them and what i'm doing now we'll touch on as you said in the entrepreneurship side of things i wouldn't be able to do what i'm doing due to the nature of the business if it wasn't for for their support yeah it's huge it's so important isn't it mm -hmm. so no pressure parents but uh yeah <laughs> success and the happiness of your child is 100 in your hands 100 <laughs> <laughs> So you have this amazing career. I mean, amazing enough for people to recite your stats to you that they're probably more familiar with them than even you are, which is quite something, really. So how long did you play professional rugby? Well, there's two sides of it, I suppose. There's the professional in the sense that you're getting paid, and then there's professional in the sense that it's it's your life 24-7. So mentally, as I said, 
from the age of 12, I was very, very focused on that's what I want to do. So everything and that, you know, growing up, you're avoiding all the stuff on the weekends, like parties and drinking and even girls and all that carry on, just focused on achievement and getting the next step of the journey and trying to figure out, you know, what's the best route to go. And you're hitting barriers that, looking back now were barriers and he didn't see them as barriers at the time because you have an idealistic view in the world and saying like, if I'm good enough, that's all it takes. But there's politics involved in sport as well, involved in anything. And that has a, has a factor. And, you know, when one door got closed in your face, right, where's the next door? And, and not taking, yeah, you do take things personally, but that drives you, but not letting it take you personally in a negative sense. And that, right. How can I use this? Um, door getting closed my face in my favor or motivation i'm just wondering what your did you have a plan b um the plan b i suppose was the army side of things but it was never really a plan b like it was a case of no there's no failure here this is going to this is going to happen and i'll do whatever it takes to make this thing happen and i think that's the attitude you have to have because like if you, you can't have a plan B going into a game, you know, it's it's we're going in here to, to win. You know, that's my viewpoint on it anyway. Um, And if all other options fail and something happens that it's just 100 percent not going to work, then, OK, what's next? And yeah. then you take your your skills and and you go and do that. And, and that's the attitude you have to have to be a top level athlete or a top level success in anything. You know, yeah. that vision of, right, I want to be a professional athlete. I want to play at the time. I wanted to play for Leinster and I wanted to play for Ireland. What do I need to do to get there? And even as a, you know, 12 year old, you look at the pathway as me as a club player. So in Ireland, there's two systems. There's a club rugby and then there's just the private school system. And the majority of players come from the private school system. So I was, you know, coming through the back door as it were already, but coming through the back door, how do I get there and they were still evolving the Irish underage rugby system at the time like a lot of countries in the world were trying to figure out with the transition to professionalism how do we get the next generation and Ireland have obviously done that incredibly well so we were the first kind of generation really who were the guinea pigs for that and he had an underage setup so you know he had your your local North Leinster then you had your underage Leinster 18s 19s underage Ireland then academy system in Leinster and then uh, development contract senior contract so there's that right I need to get this I need to get that I need to each one of them and I ticked the box in every single one of them right the way up so right tick it's like getting your exams boom got that exam next I can qualify for the next one so on and so forth. And that was very methodical for me. It's different for other people. Other people will do very well underage, then drop off. Some people will do not so well. And then they'll burst onto the scene at an adult uh, level. But I did it the whole way up. And this is a case of starting every single team, first choice, every single team, uh, the whole way up. And then you hit adults, senior level. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're in the mix with British and Irish Lions, you know, straight away. And that's when things get a lot more serious and a lot more difficult for you to kind of prove yourself. And then it comes down to opportunity mm -hmm. and everyone is at the same level and you have to say, how do I stand out? And when you get your opportunity, taking it 
you know, and timing and performing on the day because you can perform 99% of the time at your best. But on the one match, on the one occasion where the scout is in the bleachers or it's on TV and you don't perform, that 99% of the te- time previous means nothing. Yeah, That's how ruthless it is. Um, so and is, I learned is there that- an element of luck involved? There is. It's That's a big part of it. But there is luck. Yeah, you have to be prepared and how to prepare for that is the repetition. So when you've done that over and over again, but then, you know, I said there's so many different, the timing of it, you know, the bounce of a ball, you know, if it's a wet day, if it's a dry day, if, you know, you're, you're slightly more tired that day, there's loads of different factors. So if you put that down to luck and timing is definitely a part of it, you know, like even, you know, my career path, you know, you have a lot of, quote unquote bad luck but you have a lot of good luck as well in equal measure almost but you keep moving forward because if you have a load of bad luck you won't know you're gonna get the good parts as well if you don't keep going you know yeah and that only comes a lot of people give up when they hit the first bit of bad luck and go oh no it's not for me or you know that was a disaster and i'm not going to try that again and he says no you keep going because as i said you'll never know if you don't pursue it and like a great example of that is how I got my first run with the Gloucester senior team in the premiership in my first minutes on the field as a, as a premiership player with Gloucester. My first year, I, I was 23rd man reserve for the bench traveling, which I was over the moon with, you know, this is awesome. Even just at that stage, you know, cause when you're, you're trying so hard to get into the space, at least I'm in the mix was the thought and anything can happen as we're talking about good luck, bad luck. Then in the warm-up, uh, I need to give a shout-out. He's, he's a great friend of mine now, but Martin Thomas was on the bench, uh, back three. He rolls his ankle in the warm-up. So then I'm on the bench for the game beforehand. So I said, wow, this is awesome. I might actually get a run. And then in the first 15, 20 minutes of the game, Charlie Sharples, awesome player, as, as, as you probably know, played for England and Gloucester. Hurt gets an injury, hurts his ribs and comes off and then I'm on the pitch. So the chances of those things happening statistically for a 23rd man are very rare. But then I come onto the pitch and we were playing London Irish in the Majeski Stadium. I'll never forget it. Every time we scored, we scored quite a bit. Every kickoff, they kicked straight to me. So I got a huge amount of ball carrying, did it incredibly well. Um, had a great performance and I was starting the next week against Worcester, my first ever start in the Premiership. That's how quickly things can change after fighting and struggling and trying to get your opportunity. A lot of that is luck, timing. You know, those things to happen, as I said, not just getting on the field, but kicking the ball to me nearly every single kickoff directly on top of me every time. Um, to give but me, but then that. you took that opportunity as yeah. well, right? I mean, that's the other thing they say, isn't it? That luck is where opportunity means prep- uh, meets preparation, and it's exactly what you say. You, you know, all those years of practice, 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 practice. Get up at stupid o'clock, probably practice, practice, practice. Turn up, show up, sit on the bench, and then when the opportunity came, 
it sounds like you grabbed the bull by the horn and just went for it. And that's it. Yeah. And that was the beginning of, you know, it was my best season. It was that year was amazing. The first season in particular with Gloucester because it's where I wanted to be and it's new where it's where I knew I should be. And finally I was getting the opportunity to the show because it's like anything, it's it's consistency. You need to have consistency in your training and you're playing and that but you have to have the opportunity to be consistent as well yeah. and the big issue when you're trying to break in you might go oh here's 15 minutes every four or five games and that's not good enough to to get better as a player but also to prove yourself and show to your teammates and to your coaches that yeah that's a first choice player and that's a big issue as well in professional sport because it's a very difficult thing to do to get that opportunity to to be on the field consistently when it's such high level, when you're trying to break through. So, and, you know, luckily um, that year I was able to do that. And then I was uh, seen as a first choice in the start of that season, which was incredible, you know? So, um, so the first just long winded way of answering your, my first kind of real senior quote unquote senior contract was when I basically failed in Ireland. Um, I didn't make it in Ireland for various different reasons. And, I was in the last chance saloon to prove myself to get that opportunity to play after getting written off. And I got an opportunity to play in Rotherham in Yorkshire, Andre Bester, who I owe a hell of a lot to. And again, those people that believe in you, mm -hmm. that see something in you and want to give you that opportunity. I wouldn't have got to Gloucester if it wasn't for him giving me, because no one else was interested. You know, and that's how quickly and how ruthless it is. As I said, consistently throughout my underage career you know top one percentile the whole way up and then within a year you're on the scrap heap and then within another year i'm playing in the back line of the best back line in the premiership that's <laughs> professional sport what an amazing transition what's happening in your head i mean we could talk about your rugby career i mean we're going to talk about your career change at some point, but we could probably talk about just your rugby career for about six hours, couldn't we? Yeah. Like, but what's like what's going on for you emotionally when all these changes are happening and it and it feels like it's happening quickly? It, you know, it's similar to yeah, what's happening emotions I go through in the entrepreneurship side of stuff. A lot of the time, it's frustration when you're not getting that opportunity to to show your your what you're capable of doing you know there's other things that get in the mix as well injuries of course is a big part of professional sport and that's something uh within and out of your control as well the injury side of it too um that that's something difficult to get over but let's just put that to the side for a second and when you are fresh and you're fit the frustration of knowing that you're good enough you know i, I never I never had the imposter syndrome people talk about all the time. I always hear people talk about imposter syndrome. I never had that ever. Um, I always knew I was good enough. 100% you have nerves. You're nervous. You want to perform. But it was never a case of, oh, I'm not good enough. I shouldn't be here. And that's my mindset on it. And it was a case of, I know I'm good enough. Let me show you what I can do. And it comes down to people as well. I suppose the type of player I was, I was very much like Marmite for anyone who knows. Yeah, you either love it or you hate it. And whenever I got a coach that really 
like Marmite, I excelled. And that's what I was from a leadership perspective, someone who was my leader and my coach. The more they believed in me, the better I played because the more confident they got, the more opportunity I got, the more consistency I could get. Um, I generally work better under more pressure. So the more pressure I had, it just seems to, to work better for me in, in that sense because, you know, I wanted to reward them and say thank you to them for believing in me. Kind of That was kind of my perspective of it and my my teammates as well because that was a huge, that's one of the biggest things for me was the respect of your coach, but your peers in the team as well, and not letting them down. And that was the main kind of, if you're going to put pressure on yourself, was not letting the team down. So um, that was kind of the mindset I had when I was trying to break through. Um, And then when you do get through, it was a case of keeping that mindset of earning respect and training hard and, proving you're good enough to be here to the others. You know it yourself, but just proving it to everyone, but then trying to enjoy it as well, because I've, I had it almost taken with me, taken from me so many times, you know, I said, I've dedicated my whole life towards this. And so many times you had uh, within the space of two or three years, uh, whether it's injury or just personalities and the politics side of it, people not liking Marmite and not believing in you and saying you're not good enough and you're not going to make it and dealing with all that goes with it as well for whatever reason and then when you are in a position where this is what I've worked all the time for trying to enjoy it take in those moments um that was a part of it as well and then with my story unfortunately it went the opposite direction again you know like the the up and getting to I'll never forget it Recently, I put a post on my Instagram, the the Gloucester Bath Derby was on a few weeks ago. And that was a pivotal moment, one of the best memories I have in, in professional rugby. Uh, I always wanted to play in the Leinster-Munster Derby as a Leinster player because that was the that was the game. That was the game I always looked up towards. It was the biggest game in Ireland, one of the biggest ones in Europe, et cetera, et cetera, and didn't get to do that. And then, as I said, within two years, my first season in Gloucester, I was starting in King's home against Bath. And this is a game I used to watch as a kid as well on TV. Like Gloucester Bath was the game. And that was, an, and I had a, a fantastic game that day, one of my best performances for Gloucester. And that was an amazing experience. And having the the knowledge to take, to try and take it in, you know, because I had almost lost it so many times before that, that like, this is why, and this is, and the the day they announced the squad, I'll never forget. It was a beautiful sunny day, leaving Harpery. We used to train there at the time, driving out and just getting a rush of adrenaline and smiling to myself because everything was just, everything was going well, everything in life at that stage. And the sun just beaming in. I says, it doesn't get any better than this. This is incredible. This is what it was all for. This moment. Hold on to this. In the car, you're starting and, you know, the the derby, et cetera, et cetera. So those kind of moments you hold on to as well. Um, and that was brilliant. And then it goes back to the negative stuff comes in again because <laughs> it, it's, it's fleeting. Because it's but, life. Yeah. Because it's life. Yeah, um, exactly. You just want to bottle up that day or those moments where you feel like everything is how it should be yes yeah 
but you don't understand how good that is unless you have the days as well. Totally that. that. So totally that. Yeah. yeah. So it makes it all the sweeter, doesn't it? Yeah. So mm-hmm. that that was it. So the first year in Rotherham and then um, I got scouted and got signed by Gloucester and had a one-year deal. And that was the side of it as well. High, high pressure. My whole career in the kind of quote-unquote professional once you got your first academy contract which is not a senior contract but still contracted on a year-by-year basis come you, you know season starts in the summer with pre-season come christmas time you're like do i have a contract for next year the pressure kicks in and that's massive stress and that's that's something that people don't realize in the sports perspective in rugby because most for me i only ever had one two-year contract in my whole career which was my my first season in Gloucester I was on a one-year deal and I got a two-year extension. The stress reliever was that was unbelievable. Like, mm. you know, to, the fact that you don't have to worry. Um, so that aspect of it financially, and then as you get older, then the the financial aspect of it does become a criteria too, because, you know, I didn't play rugby because I wanted to get paid for it. I played it because I love rugby. It was my passion and you got paid as a bonus. But as you get older and life gets in the way you're kind of like right i do need to get money and i want to be paid what i'm worth that's the other side of it too like anyone who's good in a job you want to be paid what you're worth and that becomes a factor and then you have contract negotiations and as i said all that side of stuff and that massive uh stress comes into it which is completely outside of the game and that affects the game then as well so that's a whole podcast in itself contract yeah. negotiations yeah and experience with that you know yeah, I can imagine. So what led to you finally hanging up your boots, so to speak? Um, I suppose it comes back to that Marmite description. Um, when I had, I had three very good years of coaches liking what I offered as a player. You know, Andre, obviously. Then I had, I was actually signed by Brian Redpath in Gloucester and I signed a contract and he was gone within two weeks. I went up to sales. So uh, at the time, I'll never forget my agent at the time. was like, don't worry, it's signed. They can't get ready. kind of thing. I was like, I says, don't, it doesn't matter. I said, it, whether it was Brian or whoever comes in next, my attitude is not going to say change. Like I was like, if you're looking at the NFL, like draft pick 500, you know, bargain basement at the end of the season, player coming in. So they don't have massive expectations for me coming in, but I know what I can do. And so my attitude is not going to change. And that's exactly what happened. And thankfully, the new coach that came in, Nigel Davies, it was good, great timing in that he was looking at the whole squad with fresh eyes. So this worked massively in my favor in that respect. And Nigel, really, I had a really good preseason, really liked my attitude. We got on really well. I just, everything just went the way it, it, it needs to go for it to succeed. And that ended up in me having a fantastic first season and getting my contract extended. And sadly for me, after the two years, at the end of my second year, I was about to go into contract negotiations. And if Nigel had stayed, would have been very good for me. But Nigel got sacked, as did basically the whole coaching staff and all the stripes that I had earned over the two years. And there's lots of stuff that had happened over that period of time on and off the field that I had proven myself over and over again 
uh, you know, and how much this, the team meant to me as well and playing for Gloucester and everything that goes with it there uh, went out the window and looking at the team with a new slate uh, worked against me with the new management that came in. And unfortunately, I went from, you know, when I was fit and able to play, basically being in nearly every squad, match day squad in the premiership to not being in one squad for the whole year. I was there. So you're going from one extreme to the other within within months. And again, you as a player, you're an asset, you're a commodity, you know, as we used to joke in the dressing room, you're a piece of meat, essentially. <laughs> uh, like racehorses. And if you're not playing uh, out of sight, out of mind, your stock value starts to drop and people start to ask questions and why is he not playing? Is he injured? No, he's not injured. If he's not injured, why isn't he playing? Is there an issue with him as a player? Is there an issue? This this senior management team are very experienced and really good. Why would they would not be playing with play him if Leicester's a real? All these things happen and it affects uh, your value and then it affects you. Um, um, I suppose you the, the mentally and emotionally side of stuff, that frustration starts to come back and and anger and you know everything you work so hard to to get and build and you have it and then someone's taking it out of you know it's completely out of your control. There's nothing. Doesn't matter how hard you train, how well you know all those hours, all those extras. You know doesn't matter because it's a decision being made by someone else from a whether it's a you know strategic or personal or business it doesn't matter it's just completely out of your control and that's the worst part of being an athlete as well I think and and that ultimately mentally that was a very very tough year uh, because of that and you're an outsider in a squad that you were right in the center of it and you loved it and there was a lot of new players came in that year as well there was a kind of a big change not just in management but about half the squad kind of flipped and those new players that came in, I did never have the opportunity to prove to them why I should be there. And they're coming in and then your status in the squad starts to go down because you're not seen as a as a first team player. And then you become basically the, the shags, as we used to call them, the boys that are holding the pads every training session and doing extras at the weekend. And then you're in training with the academy boys every weekend no disrespect for the academy boys are great, but that's not where you want to be. You don't want to regress. And and um, that ultimately was that year in a nutshell. And then I got an injury. The one game I bloody played in February in France in the Champions Cup, I came off the bench about five minutes before the end of the first half and um, was hitting a rook and dislocated my shoulder. So it was just compounding one thing after another. And... Uh, there was still enough time to get back fit and I was in great shape before the end of the year and there were still maybe six games to go, but I wasn't involved in any of them. But then you have that on top of things as well, trying to get a contract and the timing of it as well. I was actually looking to move because I knew there was no future for me in Gloucester at the time and I did get an offer the week I did my shoulder. I got an offer to go on loan to another uh, premiership team and obviously I couldn't go so there's kind of all these things it's nearly the universe is telling you nearly um, it's time to to move on you know and mentally I was kind of I didn't realise at the time I got back fit and I managed to get a 
short-term contract with Munster and uh, World Cup cover in 2015. And but mentally going into it, I knew I was going back on a, a not in a strong negotiation position because basically I didn't have any other offers on the table. It was a short term contract. I learned a lot about negotiation and contracts and business over the few years in rugby too. And I had actually been offered a contract by Munster two years previously after the awesome season I had in, in Gloucester two year big number contract compared to what I had been on. And you're going from a two year six figure contract to three months, not six figure contract, you know, and you know, I, I didn't get an extension, did well, but didn't get an extension, but mentally I was, you know, I was done. I was done really even before I got the monster looking back now, I was kind of lying to myself, you know, I says, no, I'm, I'm done because I'm going back to the, I'm basically going back to the start again. And I have to rebuild everything. And I'm 28, I'm not 23. And in sport, that is a huge thing, your age as well. So, and I didn't want to do the grind. I'd already done the grind, starting from nowhere, you know, very little money in terms of contract wise. And it was time to move on. And I said, the universe was telling me, you know, next. So next, that's, next. that's, that's why. So, did you start? forming some kind of plan while you were still playing or did you have to make a clean break from what you were doing I always kind of coming back to your original question plan b I always knew you had to have a plan b because of the nature of rugby and that was mainly to do with injuries if you get injured doing what you love you have to have something to fall back on and big part of that as well was you know the education side of having a degree is very important in general, that's changing a lot now, as we know, and the, the modern landscape. But still, then, is you have to have that piece of paper to have an opportunity for a job and a career. And as I said, it was always secondary. The degree I got in Dublin, I, I got one while I was in the Leinster Academy, which, uh, you know, it's an excellent degree. It's an engineering degree. It's a Bachelor of Science in Product Design, mm-hmm. which is a fantastic degree because it's so flexible. It's, it's it is the entrepreneurship degree. It is the dragon's den, the people who stand in front of the dragons. That's essentially what that degree is for because it covers everything in product design concept, coming up with an idea, prototyping, designing it, manufacturing it, then uh, scaling a business and marketing. It's the whole life cycle of what it takes to make a product and build a business. So fantastic to have that. I had that in my back pocket as well because I got that before I left Ireland. Uh, it took me five years as opposed to four because I took a year out to to focus on the rugby, which I had to do because it was just too much of a workload to do both at that time. Um, so I had that and I knew how important it was to have if injury occurred or if the doors or the the walls were in too high, let's say. And that's ultimately what happened at the end. So... What I did do along the way was I started putting my finger into different pies in terms of testing out business and making money and stuff like that, but things that I enjoyed, like the rugby. And one kind of happened by pure accident, um, which I still do today, which was my art. 
So I, I paint portraits and I've got a bit of a reputation uh, as a rugby artist, you know, niche across the board, which I suppose I haven't pushed as hard as I I should or could have due to the lemur stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, that that happened my first year in Gloucester. I, I told the story a few times on podcasts, but it's a funny and it's an interesting story and how, how things can happen. But it was Christmas first year in Gloucester, Secret Santa. And everyone pulls, obviously, who they're going to get a present for. And I got the most famous fella on the squad, which is Mike Tyndall. You know, so anyone who doesn't know who Mike Tyndall is, he's former England rugby captain, World <laughs> Cup winner. I have a winner. funny story to share with you about Mike Tyndall, which I'll tell you later. All right. Yeah, cool. Mm-hmm. Mike, if you're listening, it's all positive. Mm-hmm. But uh, and and he's he's married to uh, Sarah Phillips, who is the queen or formerly the queen's granddaughter and the king's niece. So anyway, I got that and, and I was like, right, what am I going to do for uh, a present? And I uh, decided, oh, OK, I'm an Irishman, you know, I'm the only Irish guy in the squad in England and I get slagged the whole time and yada, yada, yada banter. It was all good, great fun, you know. So I said, right, he's part of the royal family. I'm going to get him an, a, a tricolour, <laughs> the Irish flag, you know. And my dad, we had a game and my dad was coming over and my parents and I said, dad, will you get me a tricolour in the airport just as a gift or whatever? And he says, no problem. Brought it over on the Friday. The Secret Santa was the following Monday and he never took it out of his bag. And when he went, I said, dad, where did you leave the flag? He said, oh no, Shane, I brought it home with me back to Ireland. I'm like the night oh, before no. with no present. You know, what am I going to do? I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. He says, I have a canvas there. I, I, I'm just doing, going to do a quick portrait of tins and there you go. That's the present, you know? So I got a headshot of him, did this little A4 size canvas and wrapped it up. And we did the Secret Santa anyway. The next day it was very, very funny and good crack. And then everyone was like, oh, what the tins get? What the tins get, you know? And he goes up and he opens it up and he goes, oh, it's a portrait of me. And it's actually pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> And everyone's like, oh, okay. and, and stupidly, I didn't think, because, oh, you know, you sign your portrait. So I signed my portrait and it's meant to be Secret Santa. But anyway, like, oh, Sh- Shane, oh, is that you? And I said, oh, yeah, that was me. And they're like, Jesus, that's brilliant. You should do that for the, the shed heads, the fans, the Gloucester fans would love that. They'd buy them. And I said, Jesus, that's not a bad idea. So that's how that started. So I started doing portraits of the lads and they'd sign them for me. And then the fans started buying them and I got a reputation and did very well with that. And then. I branched out a little bit from that website, making T-shirts for the fans. So different quotes and, you know, the Fatboy Slim song, what was it? Eat, sleep, train, repeat, or it was one of these things, the song he had. I just got, made a T-shirt, eat, sleep, shed, repeat, you know, the, the shed heads. And they did incredibly well. And I started doing that. And I had a background in entrepreneurship and business and retail anyway, because my dad and my grandfather and, they had a a store in our hometown of Drogheda, which was a, a sports shop, clothing, men's clothing, women's clothing. So I, I was on the floor, the history of selling clothes from the age of like five or six, seven, selling, selling to people. So that's kind of touching on things that I had experience in and enjoyed. And that was the beginning of kind of the entrepreneurship. So I had that in the background as well. And then to answer your question again, a long-winded way, did I have something to go into when I was coming to the end of the the rugby, and the answer is yes, because I had come up with the idea for Lemur, the Christmas, so December 2014, the Christmas of that terrible year, probably the worst year of my uh, career and life and stuff like that today was that year. So it's amazing what appears out of, you know, a, a truffle, a truffle in a pile of 
you know? <laughs> so I had that to focus on and it was essentially, I just plugged out from the rugby and plugged straight into that. Everything, just everything was plugged out and plugged in and it was just a smooth transition. Boom. Amazing. Oh, that's what everybody wishes for, that smooth transition. And it doesn't always happen that way because a lot of people want to get out of what they're doing and then they're lacking the vision of what they could be doing. So it's really, it's fab to hear you say that actually you had quite a clear vision of what you wanted to do. And, you know, you can say again, you were lucky that you had these skills and that you were having fun with it. And then it actually grew into something that was, you know, able to make money. But uh, I, I mean, I love the fact that, uh, and I heard you talk about that on a on a different podcast as well, that your grandfather and your father were role models for you in terms of running your own business and the skills that it gave you growing up and just being able to have conversations with people that you don't know. And I think these are all skills that we underestimate, don't we? We underestimate how important they are. Massively. And that's you know, the um, ignorance of youth, isn't it? You know, you can't put an old head and young shoulders and people are getting you to do this stuff that you might not want to do and you think is boring or you're embarrassed to do it, but they stand to you and without a doubt, like the ability just to have conversation with people and have the confidence to sell something uh, because selling is a skill in itself, you know, and takes a lot of practice. Being on the shop floor and going up and just, asking someone and then finding and negotiating with them and you know all that side definitely influenced and helped me uh doing what i do now and uh learned a hell of a lot from my daddy's very interesting story as well and you know the never give up attitude i got that from both my mother and my dad um and then as you said my extended family my my granddad my dad's side who i didn't know for too long was he died when i was quite young but his legacy was there and learning from from my uncles and my dad and then people who knew my grandfather, but then my grandfather on my mother's side, um, his ethos and mindset, he was um, in the, the guards, so the police in, in Ireland, he was a quite a high level, he was superintendent in my hometown, so very, very well respected guy and just an absolute gentleman. So all aspects, it moulds you, your family and who you're exposed to and um, and it helps you slowly but surely as you get older, you learn the lessons of how ident- how to identify the right type of people to engage with, to mold you and the people not to engage with, yes, you know, equally important. Very, very, because that's often overlooked or not emphasized enough. You know, the people, oh, this is what you need to do to succeed. But also this is what you do not need to do. This is what you need to avoid doing you know, um, to succeed. And that's a huge part of it. And and the red flags, as I call it, you know, identifying red flags in, in situations or personalities quicker, you know, and that comes from practice and dealing because in general, you know, you, you go into conversation with a very open mind. You have to be open and trust people and see the best in people. But unfortunately, the world doesn't work like that. And business certainly doesn't work like that and there's cues and the more you do it the more you see it <laughs> it's crazy the same phrases are used the people acted the exact humans are so similar you know whether you're in america or europe or these humans are the same and they act very very similar across different cultures and they say very very similar things and it's the quicker you can identify green flags and red flags 
the easier your life will be. And that's a big thing that uh, you learn from. Yeah, I've learned definitely in my professional sporting side of stuff. And I've learned into entrepreneurship uh, over the last number of years. And I'm still learning. You are you learn every day, but I'm a lot um, better suited now than I was uh, when I started the Lemur journey, that's for sure. Yeah. So tell me about your fears, because I mean, we're talking about psychology and the psychology of, you know, who you're interacting with and all of that sort of stuff. In terms of any fears that you were experiencing when you made that, I mean, it's a huge transition, isn't it? Because you're it's not just a job it's a, a way of life isn't it and you've got your team and you've got your, your training and all the things that you've been used to for so many years what are the fears that were coming up for you I it wasn't fear I had no fear same as the rugby side of the stuff I had I knew I was 100% capable of doing and it was fresh it was exciting in a way it was more exciting than anything for me at the end of the rugby career and it wasn't, it was a gradual process. Usually it's people like they retire at the end of the season, they hang up the boots and then like, oh, now what? Or that's finished and it's done. They know they have their last game and and that's, I never had that. Um, I didn't, I never made an announcement. I'm retired. Thank you. Uh, you know, uh, kind of thing for me because it was still kind of, when I was doing the lemur thing, I finished with Munster and I still had an agent because this was at the beginning of the season. So like I did preseason and I played maybe six weeks or whatever it was. So there was still a full year to go in rugby. And I was a free agent and I had an excellent CV, an excellent reputation. And um, my agent was looking, but uh, there was nothing of interest that was coming up. And as I said, mentally, I was checked out. So if something came up, I look at it. If I didn't like it, I wasn't going to do it. Uh, I wanted to look at, at doing the lemur thing. So there was that kind of thing in the background was there, but I didn't really want to do that. Um, so it wasn't a fear. It was more of a the the year leading up to that period of time was my really hard time. You know that mentally, you know, you know, quite a dark place because I knew this is the end. I just knew in my gut this the way things were going, this is not good. And it was more again, you're going from the frustration into anger because it's being taken from you and then out out of your control. Not as if I was playing shit. I didn't even have the opportunity to play shit. And that that was a thing. And it was more regret because I knew I wasn't going to achieve the things within that chosen domain that I wanted to achieve, you know, like, you know, obviously proving myself and getting a certain amount of caps and tries and playing in, in, in the premiership and getting my Irish cap playing for Ireland was my dream. I didn't get to do that. You know, all that stuff I knew was being taken. So that was a regret. You go into from the, the fear is more regretting in, in that career because I knew that was gone. That was done. It was ending. And then I kind of had to accept that. Well, I hope you enjoyed that first part of our chat and the second part where we talk about what he's been up to since hanging up his boots will be available very soon. So don't forget to subscribe or follow wherever you're listening.